Welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast interested in all things related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. My name is Adam Jaziorski, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steamboat. How's it going? Do you think anyone noticed the slight uh, name revision on the podcast that we're now Core Ideas, the paleolimnology podcast? Uh, probably not until you pointed it out, but I think uh, it's deserved two years in 41 episodes in the bank and there's no one nipping at our heels no. to compete for the title of the paleolimnology podcast it's true it was important to get that done before we decided on the the t-shirts and the the merchandise uh, i don't want to be a paleolimnology podcast on the shirts so i think it was the right call yeah not just one of many that's right all right what shall we talk about today my friend well, given that our current arc is called Conceptual Rabbit Holes, uh, kind of look into another sort of off-the-wall, mind-bending topic within not really paleolimnology as a whole, but or not specific to paleolimnology, I guess. Some aspects of paleolimnology that are kind of... Uh, um, are particularly interesting the more that you think about them. And so I was thinking with today's episode, we would take a look at how the scales involved um, can really get a little weird when you start dealing with microorganisms and microenvironments. So we're looking to some questions of scale. Sounds good. Yeah, it's one of those weird things, right? Because generally in paleo, we're interested in little things like small fossils, all those kind of things. But they're there in huge numbers and they're living in huge spaces for them. And, and that's a bit of a conundrum, a conundrum for them. And it doesn't affect their existence. They don't know that, but, uh, <laughs> or care it, or care, but for the <laughs> paleolimnologist, it is a weird relationship. Sometimes it may be important from a like, methodological perspective, but, but it is an interesting thing to ponder when you go down one of these rabbit holes. So let's do it. Absolutely. And so in terms of the relationships looking, I think, you know, you can come at them from the perspectives of the spaces involved, the densities or concentrations involved, and especially at the end. And then, and then it does get more paleo specific, uh, the time scales involved. Mm -hmm. um, but I think maybe kind of start with like size and space and, Kind of involves a bit of a slight detour into the world of oceanography. Yep. Which is something I don't know very much about. But uh, diatoms, you know, as like the classic example or the type organism of paleolimnology in many ways, uh, are individually incredibly small, ranging in size from 2 to 200 micrometers. Um but they make up, despite that, they make up a significant fraction of the Earth's biomass. And I was kind of like blown away when you start looking for references um, and just estimates of how important they are to life on Earth that they generate 20 to as high as 50% of the world's oxygen. Yeah. Which I'm not sure I believe, but uh, that it goes that high, the 20%, like a full half seems yeah. absolutely incredible to me. 
but I guess, um, uh, yeah. Oh, for sure. That's one of those facts that, you know, you read and you say in lectures, I, I say that often in lectures because it's always a good idea to talk about diatoms. Mm -hmm. It makes me excited. Uh, and people just look at you like you're completely crazy. It's like, what about the trees in the Amazon and all of the other plants and those organisms? Those ones would make sense, right? It would make sense that trees that are three feet, four feet, 10 feet across produce a butt ton of oxygen. But yeah, tiny, a lot of tiny diatoms into yeah. 10, feet, uh, 10 feet across. You can, and the ocean covers a pretty significant portion of our earth. Yeah. So uh, that's one of those one of those crazy, crazy things of scale. There's so many of them, and it's three dimensional. You know, the the photic zone in the ocean can extend a decent way down, so you get a huge area, huge volume. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, there are lots and lots and lots of you know even just those tiny things, and then just you know just again to like wrap your head around the scale is the fact that you know there are layers of diatomate. I'm not gonna be able to say this right. Diatomaceous <laughs> earth. Nailed it. Uh, um, you know, on the ocean floor or piled up in the ocean floor that it's a mineable resource. Yeah, for sure. And and not one that's like rare. You know, you, you don't have, it's not like diamonds. You, that's a mineable mm. resource that you pay an incredible amount of money for each of them. You can go to the garden center and buy it in squirt bottles that you can then put around your plants to keep the slugs away or whatever they're for. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Huge, huge quantities. Yep. Just sitting on the ocean floor, ready to be harvested, dried. And it's just packs sold and packs for eight bucks a bottle. Ancient diatoms. Yeah, exactly. Like pure, pure diatoms. It, it, there's some pretty cool videos online or pictures or whatever of people taking like a smear of diatomaceous earth and putting on a microscope slide. I've never actually tried to do it. Um, but yeah, just exactly what you would expect. No different than a really concentrated slide from a, a lake core or something, just different species. And um, so, yeah, so this will be the theme of the episode because questions of scale um, and in, Particularly, uh, especially at the beginning when you first, or at least I thought, at the first introduction to paleo as a grad student, the physics of size come up again and again and again. And I did my, uh, not all of my early years, but some of my early years in paleo were on the zooplankton side of things looking at cladostra. And it was like a, just a general anecdote from my supervisor that really stuck with me um, when I first talking about doing like zooplankton net hauls. And just the idea, it's like, because like you can see a Daphnia, it's got a black eye spot, you know, and it's visually dodging things and moving out of the way when things come out toward it, towards it. And I just asked like, you know, the fairly obvious question is like, so what's like, I'm trying to scoop up these diatoms with this net that's like 30 centimeters across. Daphnia, it's uh, Clodosra, yeah. Yeah. I'll stop them just moving out of the way. Like, how do I know I have a representative sample? Uh, and he said something along the lines of, yeah, well, it doesn't really matter. It's the equivalent of if, like, you know, aliens started doing football field-sized dredges of the earth at the speed of sound. Um, <laughs> you can run all you want, but you're not getting out of the way of it. And I never checked the math to see if it was equivalent at all, but the imagery really stuck with me. Oh, it's a great, it's <laughs> a great example. Even if it's an order or two of magnitude off, it's, it still gets the point across, though, right? <laughs> And sounds great. Like it's a great thing that you can say 
over and over to students and they can perpetuate it. Now they put it on their podcasts and everyone says it because it's true. It's on the internet. So it's true. Yeah, exactly. So because it gives you that visual that it, it, the scale is so completely different, you know, even if it's not a football field size dredge, even if it's, you know, the size of a dump truck, it doesn't matter. The scale is outside of your range that you experience on a day-to-day basis. And that's exactly what it is for those Daphnia or whatever, as it would be for you if aliens came and started scooping up the, the planet. It's a great, it's a great example of like science communication and how it could work. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, just thinking of like, just from the perspective of, you know, just hand powered motion through the water for the scale of these guys is just orders of magnitude beyond their abilities to react for sure, you know, or comprehend in, in the equivalent, equivalent sense. Yeah. And then we'll talk about, I think in a minute, when we think about the, the medium itself and, and that compounds all of those differences as well because how you experience the environment depends on the the scale that you exist at but a few more examples maybe uh, before we leave this scale size or uh, the size uh, part of the scale what else can we think about here that are important and and maybe from a aquatic but paleo perspective Well, it's still within the realms of aquatic and uh, zooplankton and cladocerin um, and in insects and things. The idea of gape limited um, mm-hmm. aspects of predation being a key to survival. Um, that you want to be big enough that you're more than a mouthful for some of the like the grasping insects and larger zooplankton. Um, but you can't, but at the same time, you can't be too big. Maybe become an easy right. prey for the right. fish that can snap you in one bite. But there's some pretty cool high-speed videos out there of like chaobras attacks and failed attacks oh, yeah. and like su- I don't know what the word would be. It's, it's like super slow motion, like super high frame rate mm-hmm. um, recordings, and just to see the massive speed that they snap at like a bosmina or something and launch themselves. And um, on on side note, a human scale chaos would be absolutely terrifying holy mean 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 looking creatures very much Um, so like alien yeah very alien proportions like you know like you couldn't design such a thing for the next predator like movie or alien like movie yeah and actually that's something we hadn't really talked about that made me think of it the idea of speed and and velocity and how that plays into this whole thing because there are lots of videos on the internet of from research or just kind of again psychom examples using high speed cameras really high frame rate cameras to look at biological organisms doing things very quickly because some especially small organisms can move at incredible rates compared to what we visualize not it's all relative to the size again because they're moving very very small distances in very very short amounts of time of course you can move further if you swing your arms but you're moving very slow relatively and those kind of um, food grasping activities or the injection of like venomous compounds and that kind of process can occur at like rates that are are impossible to see with the naked eye 
or at the frame rate that we visualize things. Yep. Absolutely. And then at the same time, you have like the, um, uh, that you have the incredibly rapid speed again, staying within the realm of zooplankton, you would have, um, Pithotrephes, who we would have talked about a little bit last episode as uh, an invasive species, will be another one of these predatory zooplanktons. And it's got this um, uh, well-deserved reputation as an absolutely voracious predator in terms of it absolutely decimates the large zooplankton that it runs into in in a particular lake uh, when it's introduced. But then seeing them in you know, aquatic, t- you know, like captured. And I remember uh, working not with a student, but in the vicinity of a student that was trying to rear Bitho in culture. You know, they're incredibly lame looking swimmers. It's the opposite effect of like they just kind of dipsy doodle through the water in right. a fairly whirly gig kind of motion kind of speed. Um, but they just never stop them. There's lots of them and they just eat everything they bump into more yeah, so yeah. than actively uh, hunt things down. And yet that is enough to um, decimate an ecosystem. Just right. The rate so they're not seeking out because there's so many food items to consume and they're voracious when they get to them. They don't have to put that time into be, being more raptorial, you know, seeking out items. Yeah. Another interesting example of the the fact that i don't know just a lot of these things are just cool examples of biology making sense at these different scales in that environment you don't have to be a great swimmer you don't need to put energy into that and it seems to work out quite well especially when you get introduced to a novel environment oh and in terms of novelty one that i thought we're talking about predator avoidance and again been excuse me zooplankton heavy uh, um in this introductory segment but uh, the idea of transparency as a predator avo- avoidance, which is a thing that would not scale up to any real size. It only works. At, well, I guess there are transparent fishes, I guess. But yeah, I don't think it's not quite transparent on the same scale as like a uh, um, as like a Daphnia. Where right. Yeah. You see right through them. Mm-hmm. And it's more you know, coloring. Yeah, it doesn't scale all the way up, like because if you had transparent zebras running around the Serengeti, it really wouldn't work because it'd still be looking like there's like green snakes floating through the air <laughs> in terms of their uh, um, digestive systems, which you can see on a on a Daphnia, but it works a little bit better because it's still uh, a fraction of a Daphnia. It would be an interesting world, though. I mean, that would be that'd be something to see, wouldn't it? Yeah, you're right. The, the transparency. Uh, I mean, well, also the idea that this is very zooplankton specific, I think they're an interesting comparison because they're like big enough that that some of the things, predation and stuff like that, make sense in the same sense that we think of them. But they're also very small. So they're they're a good um, intermediate step, hence why where they're good paleo indicators. But yeah, the, the transparency is an interesting one. I don't think it's the same for fish. Like there are very few truly transparent organisms when you get into the deep ocean things get weird um when you get into cave environments those kind of places but i think more it's a a, a like coloring perspective that's different so true transparency uh doesn't really scale up 
If it did, it'd be cool. Like, imagine seeing, like, the giant herd of transparent wildebeest, like, running down. Seeing in air quotes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. So, moving beyond just size differences and small things, um, can also, like, combine that with concentrations and densities because... um, at micro scales, these also become very interesting and in many ways are foundational to paleo in general, but are interesting in and of themselves. Um, one that really jumps out that we talked about not too long ago um, would be the concept of isotope fractionation, which I think, you know, once you, is another one of those things where you just take it at face value and it's like, yeah, it's a mathematical relationship, yada, yada, yada. But when you start talking about things like, um, uh, you know, oxygen hydrogen isotopes and the idea of like the differential evaporation rates based on the one extra neutron of mass yeah. on a particular molecule. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. You're not, you're not getting much smaller than that in terms of scale, I guess. And then when having that at planetary scales in terms of like the influence on being able to track hydrologic regimes and, um, uh, you know, global meteoric water lines. It all this comes down to lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of single neutrons. That's right. Just a little bit more neutron or a little bit less. Yeah, or just how different they behave. Like the, the fact that something with, well, I guess we've talked, we talked about this in the episode that hydrogen is the most different. So maybe like talking about the difference between lead 206 and 208 is a better example, but it's easier to visualize for hydrogens that tritium is so completely different than deuterium, than protium, all based on one single atomic mass unit difference. Uh, That I don't think there's a smaller scale example of these kind of, I guess, concentration out of the broadest sense, uh, mass differences that you can come up with. And and you do, you take it for granted. It's like, yeah, that, that's how it works. So, you know, that's physics, that's yeah. chemistry, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and then the scales involved and, you know, you were talking about when we were like brainstorming the episode of like recently working on like mercury dilutions and, you know, the process of getting down to a one part per million solution. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, we're doing something by 10 by 10 by 10 by 10 by 10. You, you know, it's, uh, it takes a while. It, it takes a while. And, uh, yeah, we were just, um, uh, calibrating some instruments that have been sitting for two plus years during the pandemic that need to be brought back online, thankfully. And, uh, yeah, preparing, you know, you buy a stock standard, that's a very low, concentrations of something known from a a laboratory or from a a chemical supplier and then you dilute that down and you dilute it again and you and you really are come up against limitations of instruments right the the accuracy of the scale the precision of the pipettes or syringes you're using all of those things and tiny tiny differences in that can perpetuate so you're trying to make a stock solution or uh, you know a solution of one part per million and you get 
a tiny little bit more in and it changes all of those numbers and you can account for all those things. But uh, yeah, the, the tiny fractions of chemical concentrations can be very, very small, but also can perpetuate these kind of not errors, but uh, issues associated with the instruments and that kind of thing. And then if you, you know, you can kind of scale up those, those tiny values and think about, I don't know, to think about like what the difference is between a lake that has two microliters uh, of phosphorus, you know, a very oligotrophic lake and one that's 20, 10 times higher. And because you often do a 10 times dilution or something like that. Uh, that's, that's a, a completely different environment, completely different lake. You know, the organisms yeah. living there are different. The processes are different. The relationship between organisms in their environment, completely different by one dilution, you know, in, in the yeah. lab sense. And then you go up one more and it's completely unrecognizable. You go right. to like a 200 um, and then even to the naked eye, you know, like it's like crystal clear versus swamp. And it's a two orders of magnitude thing. And in many of these scales, you know, you're dealing with many more orders of magnitude than that. And in terms of the scale being examined. Right. Yeah. Like pH. Right. So that's two orders of magnitude, but pH is a log scale. So the difference between five and seven, most people can't visually, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a different variable, but like the difference between five and seven is not all that significant. I mean, there's environmental differences, but not to the scale of the same as 0.2 to 200 micrograms per liter of phosphorus. And then that translates, or not translates, but you can very easily follow a thread of ideas from there into the depletion of resources, um, whether they're either low to begin with or depleted through some sort of boom-bust cycles, and how little changes can be in terms of, yes, you like you're just talking about oligotrophic versus eutrophic conditions, but in terms of tipping the scales from one system to another um, can be quite small in many ways. And when you talk about things like silica limitation, and that can... <clears throat> You know, you can have diatom blooms in low silica environments that have been essentially suck all the available silica out of the water system completely. Yep. Those are some, I, we've talked about this a bunch of times, and I, I think I say it every time. It's some of my favorite sort of paleo examples of, of that, where you have this normal system kind of chugging along, diatom's doing really great because there's lots of nutrients, but they also need all these other things. And then they drain all of the silica out of the system and you know, that limits their, their growth. Uh, and I think one of the really interesting things is to tie back to the idea of the, the size relationship that they have and that this doesn't have to mean the entire lake is, uh, drained of its environmental variable silica for, for example, they have such a small micro environment that organisms sometimes live in it might be habitat based it might be uh, just environmental kind of around them that the the pockets for these uh, depletions or enrichments or whatever are not lake scale necessarily in a well mixed system perhaps but in others no they could be very very small uh you know th that habitable zone around that single diatom is only going to be measured in millimeter, you know, 
millimeters or less uh, centimeters at the absolute outs outside. So uh, it yeah, doesn't really like, matter if it's outside of their reach. Yeah, the diatom's not going to pick up and go, ah, oh, I'm like star starving of silicon here. I'm going to walk over to the other side of the lake. And it's yeah. like they're they're only moving a tiny fraction of distance. And that limited movement creates all kinds of microenvironments where in terms of, as you mentioned, um, depletion or enrichment uh, where conditions may be, you know, absolutely perfect in the immediate vicinity, but like a couple of millimeters, a centimeter away, might be incredibly hostile to the same organism mm -hmm. and blissfully unaware of that, that difference. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And we, some of the work we did in Yellowknife, where the, the lakes that we've talked about, where the lakes were contaminated by arsenic um, pollution from, from mining, uh, one of the really interesting findings was that like uh, organism, the diatoms in the water column seemed to suffer more. You know, they came, they relatively decreased uh, at the in, associated with an increase in more benthic taxa. And one of our thoughts on that was that the the benthic environment is probably a little bit more protected. They're in the water column. They're more exposed to this arsenic. It's more mixed in the benthic zone. There's biofilms of bacteria that are able to detoxify or protect relatively the species living there. So that might be a, a location that is just a little bit more hospitable to everything, but maybe diatoms included. Yeah. Um, yeah, and those environments, they, um, are those drastic differences between environments occur all over the place. Um, lakes are very, you know, oh, that's what I'm looking for, heterogeneous, uh, environments in terms of you've got your water column, benthic substrate, the, um, macrophytes, but, you know, when you get down to the real granular nature, it's like certain macrophytes may be releasing certain nutrients or whatnot in the immediate vicinity. So we get these really pockets all over the place um, that uh, oh, sure. that we often just gloss together as the lake. Or, or the other way, they're allelopathic, you know, they're producing things that are toxic to other organisms like to, including other macrophytes like there's just so much variability in natural systems uh, the uh, and and so much competition that the differences of of a couple centimeters in water depth could completely favor a different taxon uh because of those uh you know those different abilities to really thrive in those conditions and that's within one lake like you go to yeah. the river mouth that's feeding into that system grading up to a completely different river environment going down uh, to the marine environment it's a it's a messy world out there <laughs> it boggles the mind yeah um, yeah, things you just sit and, th and think about, you know, you're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, What's it's like, you know, these are definitely rabbit holes you can go down when you start thinking more and more about it. Um, and then in terms of concentration and density, the most obvious one, and you mentioned it uh, in segment one, but it would just be within the water itself. And the idea of like the water reaching its maximum density at four degrees Celsius impacts everything in terms mm -hmm. of aquatic environments. 
uh, stratification, um, things like surface tension, but like the whole idea that lakes freeze down, freeze from the top down for a reason, you know, because uh, it's coldest up at the surface. And if it wasn't for that and you had situations where, you know, lakes froze from the bottom up, the world would look very, very different. It'd suck to be a fish in Arctic it, environments. Yes, and lakes it would. Froze from the bottom. It would suck to be something that evolved from a fish, <laughs> as well. Uh, yeah, hey, I no evolved doubt. from a fish. That's what I mean. Yeah, it would suck for <laughs> us. We, would, we probably wouldn't have this wonderful podcast. Um, or it'd be very different. Or it'd be very different. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and well, that's a fundamental property of of all <laughs> aquatic science um and the the density thing just continues you know the the movement of you know, we have a very human centric obviously view of our environment and how we interact with it and the difference in the density of water from air for example when you're walking around in air and then you get into the swimming pool you feel that difference it's a lot harder to move some people move very efficiently through that medium, others not so much. Um, and, and but that's our mass relative to the density of water. If you're a Chaobrus or a Daphnia, that's entirely different. You know, they have a totally or a rotifer, those kind of things. It's it's like swimming through syrup or treacle for us or or more. And they go to the other side. A blue whale is completely different from us too. Like their their interaction with water is totally different from ours. So it's all relative. Yeah, and like the biggest animals uh, um, in the world, diet is completely dependent on teeny weeny animals. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Blue whales are an interesting <laughs> kind of. <laughs> well, all of the the you know baleen whales are are like that. Yeah, they survive on little krill and, and other invertebrates and whatever else they can vacuum up in their giant uh, mouths. But, but they do have this very, those organisms that they're feeding on perceive the environment in an entirely different manner than, than they do. Yeah. Yeah. And just rolling back to the, the water density um, ties into the, you know, issue of our times like climate warming and the impacts that, warmer temperatures have on increased water column stability and then you're seeing just shifts um among like diatom communities when the whole idea is or not the whole idea um organ you know diatom taxa as we mentioned earlier they, they're not moving actively on their own or not very many of them are motile at all um and they're completely relying on turbulence within the water to remain in the photic zone because if they drop below the photic zone, that's a death sentence. You know, they're once they're out of the light, um, you know, they're going to starve to death, and there's no coming back up when you drop below that thermocline. So, um, you know, if like sinking out is, you know, the worst thing that can happen to you, um, the bigger, heavier ones become more disadvantaged as stratification becomes stronger. And require because they require more turbulence to stay in the life zone. Yep, the life zone. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you see that at a global scale, uh, anywhere that's that's warming and getting to be 
less, well, less turbulent, uh, less or greater stability in the column, uh, the water column. You, you can see a shift in, in the species able to better occupy that, that niche and survive in that environment and the loss of the others that can't. And then again, at the small scales, water tension can also be an impenetrable barrier. So you've got the density barrier of like the thermocline, but then also if for whatever reason you're, they're brought up above the surface, then there's no getting back down either or vice versa in terms of being stuck on the top of, uh, or the outside of a bubble or things like that. And some organisms are able to use the, the, the water tension to great effect, but for the really small ones, there's, you know, it's something they're at the mercy of. Yeah, the whole there's a whole I mean community obviously living associated with the the transition between air and water the Newston Newston whatever however you say it community uh, some living on top like the water striders and then others that live in the water on the at that bottom interface side. yeah the bottom side exactly um, and it's actually, that's actually what you don't really think that much about eh? you like it's less. Um, I don't know, less, less commonly studied, perhaps it's a very interesting environment, but, uh, a huge, well, uh, an advantage, a usable environment for some, if you want to stay at the surface and attach to that surface tension or yeah, on the, don't, don't the worry about the turbulence then. Yeah, exactly. Um, but definitely one that, uh, can be a barrier in the same way as any of the others for organisms not well adapted to that yeah cool beans yeah no no kidding like you just continue talking about this forever like the the difference in the environment um for organisms of at every kind of level um we haven't really talked about we talked about algae obviously we haven't talked about plants all that much other than their sort of chemistry environment but the the fact that macrophytes uh exist in or that can continue to go about their activities in an aquatic environment is entirely because they live in water if you take a macrophyte most people have probably done this and are trying to id them or you're moving them to a different location or whatever and take them out of the water and they're just a pile of green goop on the on the dock or in the bucket or whatever it's the water that gives them their structure it's because of the density of water that they stand up uh in the water column into the, the photic zone or float on top that's right yeah exactly uh and they could take advantage of that sometimes with like air vesicles and those kind of things but uh it, they are adapted to a totally different environment uh, just as we're adapted to uh, an, an air environment. And uh, this is something we talk about a lot, like I talk about a lot in some of my classes, is the fact that the, the properties are what makes it different. The, the processes that are occurring are all the same. You know, the processes of movement of these fluids is exactly the same. They're driven by velocity and the thickness of the environment and all of those things so whether you're in air or water or liquid ethane on the moons of titan uh, all just depend on the the density of the the fluid you find yourself in okay are we gonna start talking about the paleolimnology of other planets 
Uh, maybe not in this episode. I think we're, we're moving along. We should probably move on to time where we do have something to say, but there is a lot of, of, you know, connection to, well, using these kind of physical processes in other worlds broadly, but, but the paleo world as well. So maybe, uh, maybe down the road, we'll have an episode. Maybe we'll invite Elon Musk on to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And the final big category in terms of scales that we, I thought we should talk about today uh, is one we actually talk about quite a lot on the show um, would be temporal scales, um, just because they're really interesting, I think, in paleo because of the extremes in both directions. On the one hand, in a single study, you'll be reliant on things like on the scale of geologic time in terms of the actual deposition of the core, depending on the the sure. time scale you're walking at, if you're doing like a Holocene core, we're talking like 10,000 years. But or the isotope stuff you were talking about before, like the the breakdown of those isotopes are part of this geological sequence. So it's it's in every example, for sure. Um, but then at the same time, you know, so that is your, I guess, measuring stick, your temporal measuring stick. But at the same time, you are analyzing, in the case, in the diatom example, um, Organisms that are going through a generation time of hours to days, um, and both can be really mind-bending because you're relying heavily reliant on both, and one of them is um, so short as to kind of be hard to really comprehend, and the other one is so long as to be hard to really comprehend, and. You, you know, the purpose of every paleo-logical analysis is really to bring those two things together to say something useful about change through time. Yeah, it's the perfect, I don't know, intermediary, stepping stone, whatever it is, to, to yeah, to give people the ability or the opportunity to think about both of those kind of scales and really rely on both of those scales. And it only works because you're bridging that that not bridging the gap, but using both of those time frames, small scale, so you can rapidly. What we what do we talk about? What a good paleo indicator is: small scale organisms, rapid environmental change times. You know, Greenland sharks make a bad paleo indicator, uh, <laughs> but on the geological time scale, you know, you can get the the long history of this environment. Yeah, and th- and that kind of you know, Holocene to diatom generation time, I think would be covered in most paleo analysis in some way, but then you can scale up to real extremes when you start looking at, depending on the radioisotopes you're working with, like some of the really short-lived ones um, that you would be necessarily working with, but, you know, exposed to Vita literature, you talk about half-lives of femtoseconds, and then you know the more the stable isotopes you're looking at the uh age of the planet for yeah. their half-lives sure yeah they so may the, be radioactive but the planet's only 4.6 billion <laughs> years old so we haven't gotten long <laughs> enough to see them decrease in in abundance yeah exactly it's down to the the smallest units of time that yeah. have ever been imagined yep and um I think this is really interesting on a whole bunch of levels um, because you're putting those two things together and, you know, and you're just collating 
into individual sediment slices. So sticking with the diet, some example, you're going from generation times of days, but you're really looking at it um, coalescing into seasons and capturing bloom differences through time. And then depending on the um, deposition scale that you're working on, there might be multiple annual cycles compressed into a single sediment slice that you're working with but you're still working with very small things and um yeah and looking at those changes average through time and again another quote i have no idea where this one came from or idea where i first heard it but it seems to like tie into all of this stuff is just in general how and society or humans or just people in general seem to always massively overestimate how much things can change in a single year and underestimate how much they can change in a decade. And like a single sediment slice can, um, you can see incredibly abrupt changes, even, uh, you know, in a single season quite easily yeah. in paleolimological analyses. Yeah, I think that's a, a great quote. And, uh, and it really makes sense. And people, again, just as we have this space, it's density, whatever, uh, perspective we have a temporal one and and i don't know what it is it probably depends on the person a little bit but generally we think in the range of less than a decade probably we think about that it's how our news cycle works where it's tied into our elections and all of those kind of things um and even if you you scale it up to the like the a generation which is what 25 years or something like that on on average uh, we do have a, a very specific view that's not very long, but also not very short, um, fitting with our, our life cycle. I did some back of the napkin sitting here calculations, uh, when we were thinking about this and that there's depends who you, what source you read, but there's been seven and a half thousand human generations since our species evolved. And if you think about the diatoms with a generation type of, I don't know, a, a week, a day, those kind of uh, numbers, all of those 7,500 generations could be in a single sediment core that's 150 years of time, which is a long time for the diatoms, but not that long for us. Um, and diatoms evolved in the Jurassic period, mm -hmm. right? So that's 100 million years ago to think of how many generations there are and how they're, you know, again, humans are not a very good paleo indicator either. Um, <laughs> because of that as well so get some interesting comparisons so far so far <laughs> maybe for those aliens <laughs> who who exist on totally different time scales you know yeah and are dredging the planet at the speed of sound mm -hmm. yep or we're in a microcosm that they're manipulating yeah and um yeah and generation times um you know do anyone that has done any kind of paleo analysis can give you can have a good sense of how quickly adaptation can occur. Um, thinking back to, um, you know, if conditions become unfavorable, they disappear fairly quickly and vice versa. And if you look at any kind of study looking at tree lines, it's just like in and out, in and out, in and out of um, particular taxa associated with a particular environment. Um, and, you know, you don't have to be talking about paleo-limnology as a science, just even a single course study can give real insights into the pace of adaptation and community responses to ecological change.
Yeah, it's one of the ways we know that paleo works. It, you know, because we see these abrupt changes to changing conditions that we know have occurred, uh, the organisms respond, and that means we can track them under the right conditions. All right. So, yeah. <clears throat> so, I don't know about you, dear listener, but uh, try to expand your mind. We need some like mind blown gifts uh, associated <laughs> with this episode somehow. Um, but I think it just like sort of end on, a, I guess, a little bit of a more romantic note. But I think in terms of the scales involved, uh, paleoluminology has to be among a fairly small group of scientific fields that are concerned with such extremities of scales in both directions. And I mean, obviously, physics, yes. But I think I don't think there's very many individual physicists, let's say, that are necessarily interested in both such very small things in very large amounts over very long time scales responding to their immediate environments is a definite uniqueness to all of it in terms of pulling it all together. That paleoluminology and um, um, stands apart in some ways. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe there are some other examples that you, that people could put into, but I couldn't think of any. For whatever yeah, there reason. may be, but it is a really good one. Uh, and and one that really relies heavily on it, which we said, and and just highlights the utility of a of, of, not worldview, a view that takes into account all of these differences. Yeah. And, you know, that's what makes it cool and interesting and drew me into it in the, in, in the first place was, you know, diving headfirst into some of these rabbit holes and, you know, just being like, whoa. And yeah, and perhaps got you, dear listener, mm -hmm. uh, 47 minutes into two guys rambling about <laughs> the scale of, of the universe. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Um, yes. So once again, <laughs> this has been core ideas, the paleoluminology podcast. And if you have a, any questions or comments or perhaps a suggestion for a future show, uh, just please send us a note. Our email address is coreideaspodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us on our Twitter handle at coreideaspaleo. We read everything that you send us eventually. Yes, we definitely don't have our fingers on the pulse of social media, but we will eventually get caught up and That's respond right. to you at, at most a week after the, after the fact. Um, an archive of our past episodes and show notes for many of those episodes is maintained on our website at coreideas.ajeziorski.ca. Uh, the link is listed in our Twitter bio. And if you are so inclined, you can give us a rating, subscribe, leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. We really like reading those. The five-star ratings are great. But... In the end, we do this for fun, so they're just a little extra. And that's it for today. But we'll be back soon to explore another conceptual rabbit hole related to paleolimnology, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.